Hello and welcome to Taxpayer Talk. I'm your host, Peter Williams, a board member of the New Zealand Taxpayers' Union, fighting for lower taxes, less waste and more transparency. This week, in the wake of Queen Elizabeth's passing, we reflect on the British monarchy, why it's been so successful, why it's still appropriate that our head of state should be the British sovereign, and why any moves to a republic in both New Zealand and Australia are unlikely to succeed anytime soon. I'll be joined by Canadian-Australian law professor James Allen in a few moments. In this week's panel, Taxpayer Union co-founders Jordan Williams and David Farrer discuss local body elections and the damning Oranga Tamariki report, which rather slipped under public notice because it was released on the day of the Queen's passing. And we also have the results and comment of the latest Taxpayers Union Curia political poll, which has some welcome news for those who want a change of government. As always, your correspondence most welcome on Peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Professor James Allen is a native-born Canadian but now lives in Brisbane where he holds the oldest named chair at the University of Queensland, the Garrick Professor in Law. Previously, he taught at the University of Otago for 11 years and in Hong Kong and practised as a barrister in both Canada and London. He is then a man well-versed in the law of numerous Commonwealth nations and a most appropriate person to talk with as the person at the head of the Commonwealth changes. But while it's only been a few days since the passing of Queen Elizabeth, the dreaded R-words, Republic, is beginning to enter conversations in New Zealand and I think in Australia as well. Uh, James, thank you for joining me. We're recording this on the Monday after the Queen's passing on Friday. Uh, So far, the handover, the accession from Elizabeth to Charles has gone very smoothly, but there was never much of a chance it wouldn't, was there? After all, they've had plenty of time to get ready for it. Yes, I think they knew it was coming. And in fact, as we speak, I think they're having the first ceremony in Edinburgh. So the body is stopping in Edinburgh for two days before it goes down to London and they have uh, a lying in state for four or five days, I think. And they'll have the big funeral around the 18th or 19th. All right. So let's talk about Britain's monarchy. It's survived when so many other royal houses of Europe have either collapsed or been severely reduced in status in the last 150 years. Why has Britain's monarchy been so strong and survived so well? Well, one answer is they've never lost a war. And usually when you lose a war, you get a new constitutional system kicks in. Um, Britain's also never had a successful revolution. So you take away the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, Uh, And then not having been successfully invaded for thousand plus years since William the Conqueror, don't count the Channel Islands in World War Two. That's that's that that creates an incredible amount of constitutional stability. So that's that's sort of one answer you might give from the outside. And also the the um, British royal family has been very good at moving with the times. So they have undercut some of the um, Republican push. So I think. You know, had they ever lost a war, you would have seen the end of the royal family. That's what happened with the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire, say, uh, or the German uh, Kaiser. So it's a combination of factors they've they've uh, that's created the stability plus a, a a keen ability to move with the times. 
Having said that, there are a lot of constitutional monarchies in the world. People forget that you have um, almost all of Scandinavian, Norway, Sweden, Denmark monarchies, Spain's a monarchy, uh, Belgium's a monarchy, Holland's a monarchy, Japan is a monarchy. If, loosely, we could say that Malaysia is a monarchy. Um, so, and and another oddity is that when you look at distribution of wealth in the democratic world, monarchies have a more equal distribution of wealth. So if your goal is to spread it around, then monarchies do better than republics. I don't know why, but uh, that is just a fact. So um, a lot of left of center people tend to be Republicans, but often you know, their substantive goal of more equal distribution of wealth for some reason is achieved better with constitutional monarchies. A British journalist has asked, uh, using a television drama metaphor, whether the Queen's death is the conclusion of the season or the end of the whole series. At this stage, it looks like just the conclusion of the season, doesn't it? The monarchy would appear to be, even two or three days into Charles's reign, as strong as ever. What do you think? Well, I mean, most of the people asking the question want it to go away. So it, it's a safe bet, usually, if someone's speculating that they, they'd like to see a republic. Uh, and obviously in Britain, the support for the monarchy is high, very high. Uh, there's talk here in Australia of the Labour Party pushing another constitutional referendum. I think it would lose. The The, the big danger for uh, Charles is that he's going to open his mouth too much. I mean, the Queen was a genius at her job. She really understood her job and she felt a sense of obligation to the country. But part of the deal with a constitutional monarchy is that the monarch doesn't have opinions on any political matter. You have to be quiet. And so far in his life, Charles has had too many views. Now, maybe when he becomes king, he'll stop having views uh, because we don't want to have a head of state. I mean, the, the deal in the constitutional monarchy and the British system is that the, the monarch has an entitlement to be consulted, to advise, um, to warn, and that's it. And barring once in a hundred year uh, issues related to who's going to form government or whether you're going to dismiss a government, really, that's all the input they have. The job is to um, be a sort of figurehead. And it works very well. Much better, I think, in some ways. This is the Jordan Peterson argument, by the way, that where you combine the, the actual power with the mystical trappings of power, you know, the opening shopping malls and cutting ribbons and visiting people after a hurricane, which is what they do in the U.S. The president gets both. It's very problematic. And in a lot of countries, without the American you know, separation of powers, it doesn't work very well. So as long as your head of state in a constitutional monarchy has no real power, save you know, once in a hundred, who's going to form government type reserve power issues, the system is very effective. The queen gets all of this uh, visibility, but she doesn't really, you know, she gets some consulting power, but she doesn't really have any power. She, she served under what? Or 15 prime ministers served under her from hard left to, you know, Margaret Thatcher. And her job is to see them all. And, you know, she did a great job. I think she was an outstanding um, monarch. But all those 15 prime ministers said that during their meetings with her, and they were regular meetings, in fact, there's been a stage play about it called The Audience, which I saw in the West End once. Uh, it was magnificent. Kristen Thomas was uh, the queen. Uh, wonderful, wonderful play. But the 
Even the theatrical arrangements suggested that the Queen had some, not so much influence, but certainly was offering guidance on occasion. So do politicians actually take guidance from her, do you think? Well, it's up to them. It's up to them. I mean, she's she's seen a lot of prime ministers. So she certainly has a, a, an entitlement to offer advice. You don't have to take it. Uh, but she's probably seen a lot. She's pretty stable. But that that's where it ends. What about Charles III, though? He, you've mentioned that he has had a history of saying things which would be inappropriate as the monarch. If he does say something, who can control what he says and who can take action against him? Who would take action against him? Well, ultimately, ultimately it's political. And his proclivities are to, you know, probably say things that conservatives wouldn't like very much. He's a bit of a fanatic on the net zero environmental stuff. And, you know, we can speculate that Liz Truss is going to be pulling back on a lot of those things to get over the energy crisis. If he if he were to voice an opinion on that, you know, the, the, the bedrock support for the monarchy is and it didn't used to be this way, um, is probably less affluent people than more affluent people who these days tend to vote for the right side of politics. Didn't used to do that. You know, the well-off, university-educated, inner-city London elites, they're the kind of people who are Republicans. You know, monarchy is passe for them. So it doesn't really matter what Charles says that's political. He just shouldn't say anything. Um, So that's... Provided it's completely bipartisan, uncontroversial, he can have a view. Um, now, to be fair, he can't do worse than Charles I, who ended up getting beheaded. Charles II, I think, had about twelve illegitimate kids, and you know, didn't do a very, didn't do a great job. He was okay. So Charles III, he's in the same position as Edward VII. He's not going to have a long reign because he, you know, he's taking the job at seventy-six. But if he can get through the job moderately successfully, it will then go to William. And, you know, William's a a rock star right now. I think the Republicans recognize that if it gets to William, it's going to be a a long time before they they see a republic. You know, William had the good sense of marrying someone who understood what actually the job would be. Harry didn't seem to get that totally. You know, he just married someone who's totally not, not suited for the job at all. So if it gets to William, I don't see a successful referendum or a, a move away. Now, again, in Canada, it's almost impossible to get rid of the constitutional monarchy because in 1982, they brought in a written constitution that for about five reserved matters, including the, the queen, the head of the British monarchy, which is also the Canadian monarchy, you need both houses of parliament to agree and all 10 provinces. So Alberta is not going to vote to get rid of the monarchy. It just won't happen. Prince Edward Island, which is a tiny little place, it won't vote for that. And it's not even clear that Quebec, which doesn't like the monarchy, but they might they might well not vote for it either because they got forced into the 1982 constitution. They, they've never agreed to it. And they have said that they will, they will oppose every um, move to amend the constitution. So I don't see... There's no easy path for Republicans in Canada, which is why they never talk about it. We'll talk about Australia and New Zealand very shortly. uh, But what did surprise me after the Queen's death is that she was head of state for just 14 nations, I think it is, uh, maybe plus Britain or maybe that includes Britain. That's considerably less than in the past. 
Why is it, do you think, that so many nations have decided to change their constitutional arrangements in recent years, especially in the Caribbean, and become republics? I think there were a bunch of things going on in, in um, the Caribbean. I mean, one thing that was going on is that the they had appeals to the Privy Council, and the Privy Council was blocking the death penalty in some countries. And so they pulled out of appeals to the Privy Council, and then it was a short step to get rid of the monarch as head of state. I mean, their view was that we're bringing uh, incredibly refined Western sensibilities to the question of whether we ought to execute, you know, serial murderers, and they wanted to execute. And and uh, you know, the Privy Council tended not, as a last court of resort, not to like the death penalty. So that that was going on in the background, and I just think that the sort of process of decolonization, which was very slow in the Caribbean, and to some extent it had, in, in a, any substantive sense, they were making all their own decisions. But I think having a head of state who was a different color in Britain, sooner or later, a political party is going to win a vote on that. They only have to win it once. You're never coming back in. Um, some of those, there are still some countries in the Caribbean with the queen as head of state, but they're very tiny little islands. I think the last one to go is it was it the Bahamas? I forget. Maybe it was the Bahamas. I think Barbados. Barbados might, might have been the last Barbados. one to go. Yeah. Yeah. Barbados. But just as an aside, do you think the influence of Chinese money in the Caribbeans had anything to do with it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly enough Chinese money is coming into Australia, and we're still part of the monarchy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, but hasn't? I, I don't think nobody seems to be able to say no to massive amounts of money. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but getting back to uh, the, the business of who is a monarchy and who stays a monarchy, Charles himself, when he was Prince of Wales, essentially conceded that many more countries, including maybe even New Zealand and Australia, would eventually do away with the monarch as a head of state. All very well, but you know, changing the way a country is constitutionally structured is a huge deal. Uh, so I, I think you've probably already uh, referred to this, but when is it ever the right time to make such a drastic change? Well, there'll be some people for political or religious or all sorts of reasons who want to get out, and they only have to win. They only have to win once. You're never going back in, so it's a one-way bet, and you just need the stars to align and and win a vote or win a parliamentary vote or invoke your constitutional machinery. Uh, but it's harder. It's harder in countries that force people to stop and think about it. You know, John Key couldn't even get through the change the flag referendum. Even you know, I personally feel he let New Zealand down by not throwing himself into changing the voting system, an important referendum in New Zealand. I mean, I think MMP is a is a woefully bad voting system. Uh, he didn't really put any effort into that at all. Had he, I think it would have it would have been changed. He threw himself into the flag referendum, and you know. People don't want to move to some new age flag right now. So he got his timing wrong. Bit of a disappointment, really. But again, everything comes to an end sooner or later. I've just been reading Gibbons on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So if your question is, some point in the future, will all constitutional arrangements come to an end? Then the answer is yes. Now, how, when that is and how long you can, you can um, work to keep a good system... I'm I'm a sort of a traditionalist in the sense that if you have a system that works well, then the prospect of some utopian one that no one's ever tried seems like a bad bargain to me. Indeed, indeed. We, no, we've got a, I know you weren't. 
I'm sorry, I know you weren't in Australia in 1975, but there was, you know, a major constitutional crisis then. You would have no doubt read about it, followed it, probably lectured on it uh, and taught about it since. So was Australia uh, in 1975, after the dismissal of uh, the Gough Whitlam government, were they ever close to becoming a republic then? Well, again, I think people need to have a little perspective. So, again, there's a reserve power that sits in the hands of uh, the monarch or the um, the governor general. So in this case, it was the Australian governor general, Kerr. And sometimes if it's not clear who wins an election, because the basic rule is the queen does whatever she's told to do by whoever has the confidence of the house, the elected legislature, right? Problems arise when it's not clear who's won an election or when as an Australia, you have a bicameral system and you can't even get supply through. People need to remember that the only power that's vested in the governor general, what happened in 1975 with Kerr and Whitlam was uh, he took Whitlam out, put in Fraser on the condition that Fraser would then call an election. So the grievance is, in effect, that you called an election maybe a year before Whitlam would have had to call one. Now, most people in the world would would gnaw off the right arms if the biggest criticism of your system is that once every hundred years, there might have been an election a little bit before some people uh, would have liked the election to be held. And, you know, we can debate whether Kerr could have waited a bit longer before he pulled the trigger on an election. They couldn't get any, any money bills through the Senate. Part of the problem with having a bicameral system, New Zealand doesn't, Canada in effect doesn't because the upper house is appointed. You know, you get gridlock. And so uh, the ins and outs are all on timing. No one doubts that there was going to have to be an election, but they thought, oh, well, maybe he called it a little bit too early and a disadvantaged Whitlam. Again, by world standards, if your only complaint is that we, we had an election, a perfectly fair election, and we consulted all the voters in Australia, and you know, they threw Whitlam out on his backside, you can see there might be some points about timing, but these are peripheral points. Um, you know, Kerr didn't want to do this. The only other time this has happened in the Commonwealth world in the last 100 years, there's something called the, 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 the Lord Bing affair in Canada in 1926, sort of similar. Um, the only difference is that, um, you know, Mackenzie King, who was a left of centre prime minister, didn't want to have an election, called one anyway, and, and King won. So it would be as though Whitlam had won. And King, dis- and King dismissed the governor general. That was the other. So again, People get very worked up about it, the Republicans. But when you ask them, what's your real substantive complaint here? The substantive complaint is that someone in a very difficult position uh, where you effectively, you can't get any supply through, so you're not able to finance anything, uh, called an election, in effect. You know, it was, he brought in the different guy because because Whitlam wouldn't call an election. Now, maybe he should have waited a bit longer, and that's debatable. These are borderline calls. And you sometimes get borderline calls when a government's elected and no no party has a majority and it's not clear who should get the first crack, you know, rather than forming a coalition, all the little parties won't say, who do you give the first attempt to form government? And that that sometimes just boils down to discretion on, on the part of the uh, monarch or governor general. But these are very unusual times. They happen, you know, once every five or six decades and... So that's a pretty good system. Indeed, you know, it, it, it shows system. it shows the strength of the monarchy or the the monarchical system. So can we then 
now talk about various democratic structures and you know as we've mentioned well, but before you do that Peter, yeah. can i just say that if you if you weren't in a constitutional monarchy then it would be an elected president deciding who formed the government in those unusual circumstances so it would be a wholly politicized process sure and one of the th one of the reasons we don't want our governor generals or our monarchs to be politicized is because when those situations come up every 60 years or 100 years you don't want a politicized person deciding when are we going to get rid of the government? And people don't remember that Kerr was a labor appointee who dismissed a labor government. Once you've got a president, politics kicks in and the president will be influenced by political advantage about when to dismiss governments. So it, it, those kind of situations are even worse in a republic. So I think I know the answer to this question then. So let's look at various democratic structures. We have the monarch and the parliament, the constitutional monarchy like Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Those with a president who's effectively a figurehead only, India, Ireland, come to mind. Those with a president who was the most powerful person in the country, like South Africa and then obviously the United States. So I take it in your opinion, uh, the best system is the constitutional monarchy for the reasons you've outlined, and maybe the worst system is what America has or South Africa has. No, I wouldn't. No, 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 I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, you've forgotten France for an even stronger president France has than the U.S. I mean, he can do just about anything. But, um, no, I would say this. The two constitutional setups that have stood the test of time, and there's really only two, is the British parliamentary unwritten system that New Zealand has, exactly, almost. And at the other end, the American Madisonian checks and balances constitution. I mean, most countries haven't had a constitutional arrangement for more than 50 years. There were hardly any democracies at the end of World War II. You know, Italy's on, I don't know what constitution they're on, France is on, they, they just, they, they keep having to refine them. So the two, the two constitutional arrangements that really have stood the test of time, and there's no other test really, the British one that, that New Zealand has, and the American checks and balances, Madisonian one. The thing is, there's no real stable halfway house. You either go for a full checks and balances. So you have a federal system that balances the center. You have two houses where there's gridlock. You have a president who can veto everything. You can have incredibly powerful judges um, who, and that's the American system. It was designed as, it's, you know, they talk about separation of powers, but the real um, motivating thesis of the American constitution is checks and balances. You check everything because you effectively don't trust people with power. And that has worked. It has not exported well. The American system, when they try to put it into the Philippines, it just doesn't work because you have to be a very wealthy country to get away with all that gridlock. Now, Australia has, in the written constitution, large dollops of the American Madisonian constitution, probably the most in the world, but it's in the context of a Westminster parliamentary system. If you pushed me to choose between the American and the British, I would pick the New Zealand British, but it's a close call. If you ask me which system exports better, I think the you know Westminster parliamentary systems work better. I think there's a fair bit of evidence the newly decolonized countries that become democracies do better with a parliamentary Westminster system. You know, Westminster being the name of the British Parliament in London. So when you say a Westminster system, you just mean a parliamentary system modeled at least a little on, on British lines. Um, but you know the American system is a great system, and no one can deny it. It has it has been, it's been one of the great constitutional arrangements. 
I just think it's hard to replicate. Indeed. So what has been planned for Australia if indeed you uh, ever get to a referendum situation again and you've already been there once and it, uh, it, it did not pass the popular test? Uh, the likes of Peter Fitzsimons and the Australian Republican movement, do I take it then that their system is based on maintaining a parliament, a House of Representatives and a Senate, but then having a titular head of state, a president who is, what, elected, uh, maybe appointed by the government? In other words, what is the difference between what you've got now and what they're proposing, apart from the fact that it's a person who may or may not be selected in a different way? So the problem is, if you ask an emotional question like, do you want a I had a state who's from Australia, you get high levels of support. But when you start saying to people, here's the alternative I show you, you get low levels of support. So before the last referendum in Australia, when they first mooted a republic, it was like 71% in favor. And then as it became clear what actual the implications would be, of course, it lost in every state on the actual day. So the Republicans boil down to two camps. You either have a directly elected president that everyone votes for. Now, the problem with that is you already have bicameralism in Australia. So you've got a Senate and a lower house, and it's hard to it's really hard to get laws enacted through the Senate because the government doesn't control the upper house. And then you're going to add in a third elected layer. A president who's elected tends to think that he's important or she's important. So one of the problems with an elected president is, well, they think their views matter. And to some extent, they'll have legitimacy because they won an election. And so you've got this third level. And so to get around that problem, and half of the Republicans said, well, let's have an indirectly elected president. So the the voters won't get to choose the president. The political class in Canberra, the politicians will vote for a president. That's the Irish model. But the problem with that is nobody trusts the political class at all. They've just welded people in their homes. You know, there's no reason to want to trust the political class to choose who the president is. And that's the model that got defeated. So my own view is if you tell me which model the Republicans are going to put forward, it's going to I think it'll lose. So what they what they will try to do is not ask the question. They'll just try to say, do you want to move to a republic without telling you what it's like? Or the same way we're looking at a referendum here in Australia coming up on, you know, a, a, a big move towards empowering aboriginals. They won't tell us what the details are. You know, because always the devil is in the details. Well, surely that's a fraudulent referendum, isn't it, to do that when you don't actually tell the public what they're voting for? Well, it's 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 not fraudulent in the sense that they're saying we're not going to tell you. You're just an idiot if you vote for that. I mean, it's like here's a blank check. Are you going to sign it? If I don't think that's I don't think that's a winning strategy. But I think the problem is once you've given details, your support falls away. And uh, so I think that's a problem. It, it's the same in New Zealand. And once somebody puts in New Zealand, I don't see how you move to a republic without bringing in a written constitution, which undermines, I think, the flexible, incredibly democratic and really good system New Zealand has, which is why people won't give you any details, because if they gave you details, the 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 uh, the opposition would just explode. So they can't give details if you're in the game of trying to win win this as a Republican. You don't want to give anybody details. How does the system work in, in Ireland? Because I think one of the early presidents of uh, Ireland in the 1980s uh, had a brother who lived in New Zealand. So we were interested in Mary Robinson when she was the president. Uh, but she has no real power, does she? That The, the, the power is uh, vested in, in the parliament there, isn't it? Well, I'm not, you know, I, I, I know my 
angles here, but I, I don't purport to be an expert on Ireland, but she's indirectly elected and she did have views. She had views about abortion. It was quite controversial. So, you know, you've got the elected parliament. There's an Irish word for it. It starts with a D, but I forget what it is, Dial or something. Yeah, the Dale. And, yeah, uh, and the, and the prime minister's called the teacher. Yeah. That's where the power is supposed to be. And then you've got this president and she starts making, you know, having opinions on abortion or whatever you think about abortion. It's problematic when a president starts having views. That would never happen with a governor general. You know, they'd, they'd be out on their, so that your job is not to have views. Uh, of course, Ireland's different. They had a sort of explosive break with Britain in 1916 to, to the extent that, you know, they were neutral in World War II. I had a good friend who was, you know, a big Ireland supporter. And I used to say, well, look, you know, for whatever you thought of the Brits, if you can't tell the difference between Britain and Nazi Germany, you've got a serious problem on your hands morally. And, you know, to stay <laughs> neutral and actually... There's some evidence that Ireland lit up, you know, their houses to, to some people to show the Nazi bombers the way to Britain. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, that was a leftover of a pretty explosive situation. It's all calmed down. Even Ireland was sending uh, heartfelt condolences. The Queen did a great job of bringing people together. So those sort of situations is totally understandable. You're not going to stay part of uh, effectively a British monarchy that 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 has you know tentacles out into the former colonies but for me i'm an unemotional monarchist i don't get emotional about it i just think the system works really well and i don't think anyone can offer a way to achieve the same benefits you know here if, if someone forced me to design a republic i would say we will pick a we'll we will randomly pick someone uh, get them to come up and throw a dart at the phone book and that person will be the head of state so <laughs> yeah. that gives that that recreate, you need to recreate the essential illegitimacy of the job. So everyone knows, in a sense, this is an illegitimate person getting it by birth or just being appointed by. And so they don't have opinions on anything. And that's what makes the system work. Now, once you're elected, directly or indirectly, you have legitimacy. And so, you know, Mary Robinson starts telling everyone what she thinks about abortion. And that makes governing very difficult. Back to New Zealand. Uh, these days, you're probably aware the Treaty of Waitangi seems to influence, if not override, pretty much uh, every political decision being made. The treaty, as you know, is between the Crown and Māori. Now, if New Zealand did become a republic with no ties to the British Crown, what legally would be the status of the treaty in any new constitutional agreement or arrangement? Well, I don't know. I think to a large extent, some of the things you've seen in New Zealand, this is my own view, uh, has been sort of judicially manufactured. The judges have, you know, been in a ratchet up job of, you know, giving it the status that really I don't think anyone imagined it had in the 1980s. And I don't think historically it has. But, you know, the principles of the treaty, who knows what they are? Uh, the judges are filling in the blanks for us. Uh, I am pretty sure that the pro treaty, pro republic people would just say it doesn't make any difference. And if, you know, if enough judges buy that, then you'd, that's where you'd be. Um, I think you can make a historical claim that the treaty does link to the crown. But, you know, you can also make a historical claim that the treaty was never seen as a founding constitutional document that would put any constraints on the governing parliament. And uh, so I don't know what, you know, we're just speculating here. Uh, it would be nice, it would be nice actually to have a... a a national party that had some backbone on some of these issues. But I was just over there a month ago and sure didn't seem like they did. 
Uh, you're right there, that's for sure. You were here because you've written this report on uh, Hey Pua Pua, this plan to reorganise the constitution in New Zealand within the next uh, 18 years, the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, there is more and more comment emerging here that it will happen because of a thing called demographics. Apparently there is much support for co-governance among those under the age of uh, 45 and that opposition from my age cohort doesn't really matter because we won't be around by the by the time the bicentenary yeah, I, of the I, treaty I, comes around. Is it that simple? No, those are push polls. I mean, it, it, with, with their, they've just chosen a new conservative leader in Canada who's you know says the kind of things I like that the national broadcaster is insanely left biased and he's going to take money away from them and that he's against woke cancel culture and that the you know the Reserve Bank has done a terrible job through the pandemic. And, you know, he's he was against the sort of heavy handed lockdowns and he's won and his support is growing amongst young people because, you know, they've never really been exposed to politicians on the right side of politics who say, you know, freedom matters and, and canceling people speaking and locking them in their homes and uh, having a national broadcaster. And, in, you know, in New Zealand, I think it's outrageous that these private um, media firms take money from the government on the basis that they will not feel totally free to to say what they think about Maori issues. I mean, that's outrageous. That's like being that's like being, you know, a in-house PR firm or something. But leaving that aside, anyone who says they they can, you know, they know how the youth is going to go just doesn't know what they're talking about. These things change. The problem is that right of center conservative parties don't ever these days come out and stand for anything. And so of course young people who are going through, you know, educational institutions that have been captured by the left and they have They've never been exposed to these other views, but this new guy in Canada is articulating sort of old-fashioned views that would sort of line up with John F. Kennedy. I always say, no, you couldn't put a piece of paper between my views and John F. Kennedy's. But in today's world, in the academic world, that makes you a right, hard right, you know, you know, new right fanatic. And I'm just going, well, I don't know why. But if someone stood up and articulated sort of these views on the right side of politics, I think you'd find lots of young people moving over to them, but they never do. Or at least it's pretty unusual. So that needs to that needs to be fixed. You cannot take your political compass from um, ABC or CBC or it's not Radio New Zealand. What's the what's, what's the called TV RNZ version? these days? RNZ TVNZ. RNZ. Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, going in that they lean they lean Labour by you know Labour or Green nine to one, nineteen to twenty, nineteen to one. They've got lots of polls in the U.S. where donations are public information and. And the journalistic class is more left-leaning than the university class. So when the when these people come out in some sort of push poll and tell you, oh, demography's on our side, it's inevitable we're going to win. It's just garbage, really. Just garbage. Um, what the problem is, is that there's too many political advisors on the right side of politics who tell these career politicians who don't seem to believe in anything. You know, if they stood up and said, here's the case against, and I'm telling you why, you would find, you know, look at Jordan Peterson. He's got a huge audience just telling stuff that everyone knows is true. It's pretty basic, a lot of it. But no one ever says it. So I don't know. There's just not enough bravery out there right now. Uh, you've uh, described the National Party to a T. Uh, so I take it then, after your comments about the New Zealand media, you're not particularly surprised at the lack of coverage your report on a Pua Pua received in this country. I, I struggle to remember any mainstream news organisation, whether it be print, whether it be radio, television, having any 
any articles, any stories about your report at all? Well, I don't think they can, because if they reported it, wouldn't they breach the terms of all the money they're getting from the government? <laughs> That's correct, I, yes. You know, they've, got, they've, got, they've got a few hundred million reasons not to report it. When I was at Parliament, one of the, one of the, one of the talks that uh, was arranged for me was at uh, Parliament, and um, ACT Party people came, but they were very disappointed that no one in the National Party even came to listen. You know, I, 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 I would have thought that the National Party might have had some interest in at least listening. They don't have to agree with me. I mean, believe me, I know what it's like not to have people agree. I've been married 37 years. I don't think anyone agrees with me on stuff. So I'm used to that, but I thought they might at least come. But uh, to give it its credit, uh, David Seymour and the ACT Party came, and he seemed to be uh, pretty uh, interested in the way this this hey, Pua Pua was moving. So I don't know what their their position on it is. I actually think there's votes in coming out and saying everyone should be treated the same. You know, the Martin Luther King ideal of you judge people by the quality of their character, not by the color of their skin. I don't know why anyone would want to set up a co-governance just means you have two parties based on some immutable characteristic. And, you know, it's even weirder when one of those parties represents, I don't know, 17% of the population. I'm making that number up, but it's about that. And another one, 83%. I mean, how is that sustainable? How is that a good recipe for getting along? I, I was surprised to get back to Australia and get quite a few Maori people email me and saying, I agree with you totally. I think this is crazy. Yes, I'm not surprised yeah. about that because I believe what well, it's been written, in fact, that those pushing the case for the likes of Heipua Pua and other co-governance initiatives might number just uh, a few hundred, maybe uh, a couple of thousand uh, in the academic and uh, political media elite. Uh, James Allen, it's been wonderful talking to you. I, I thank you for your time this afternoon. Uh, we are in a time of change, certainly in personnel, but I get the feeling that because it's gone so well so far, you think that it's going to take something quite uh, dramatic to change the status quo as far as constitutional arrangements in the countries that we know best, i.e. New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Britain are concerned. Well, yeah, I, I, I do think that. I, I mean, Canada just the way they've structured their written constitution, it's near impossible. Britain, there's no there's no support for a republic. Australia, you've got the same people who've been pushing for a republic, Malcolm Turnbull, um, Fitzsimons, the red bandana guy. I mean, personally, those are the kind of people I want running the case against me. I want Turnbull, who pretty much has been on the losing side of all those issues, and uh, Peter Fitzsimons. When those guys are on the other side, you feel a lot better about your chances of winning. So uh, I... You know, they're going to have to, they, they say they're going to run the, the Aboriginal voice referendum first. My own view is that loses. And then they'll try the, ref, the Republic. But if it loses the voice, they won't even get to the Republic one. But again, we have the same problem here. Our new opposition leader, Peter Dutton, who I thought was going to be good. He's just gone into witness protection since the election. We, nobody knows what he thinks on anything. I don't even know if he's still alive. He's in some secret location somewhere. <laughs> All right, James Allen, I thank you for your time. On that note, uh, your commentary on uh, the state of Australian conservative politics, it seems to match what's going on on the right side of politics in this country. And yes, we do shake our head. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thanks very much. Yes, a man who is never short of a word, James Allen, formerly of Otago University, now a Garrick Professor in Law at the University of Queensland and a man who will be familiar to readers of the Australian edition of The Spectator magazine. If you have any comments on what he's said or indeed on any matter at all, my email is peter 
at taxpayers.org.nz. This week, the Taxpayer Talk panel is Taxpayer Union co-founders Jordan Williams and David Farrer. Well, we are still in the official mourning period for the passing of Queen Elizabeth. So, Jordan, despite it now being a fait accompli and being an employer of staff yourself, are you satisfied that the cost of a public holiday on Monday the 26th is appropriate? Well, I'm going to have it something I don't usually do, which is have a bob each way. And I can say that at least on the staff and the board members that have reached out to me on this matter, that there has been fierce debate internally on it. Let me say first, though, that yes, there should be a holiday. You know, the death of the sovereign is a very significant uh, event in the life of the Crown, uh, and we should mark it. The real question is, is who should bear the cost? And in the context of uh, we've got a new public holiday in Matariki. We've got uh, businesses as well as households finding it tough. You know, I have real sympathy for business owners that have contacted us to say, look, this means I'm drawing on my mortgage to pay the staff for this day because after the two years of COVID and the financial challenges and the, uh, the uh, supply train. Uh, supply chain constraints, et cetera, et cetera, to add yet another costs to businesses uh, leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Now, the Taxpayers Union, we did think of some alternatives you could do, which one would be have a right to take unpaid leave, but it would be unpaid or you could put it on your um, holiday entitlement. That could be one because, of course, after all, the Queen was everyone's Queen, so maybe we should bear the costs of that. But the problem is is that now uh, it is going to be on, for the public sector, just on taxpayers, carte blanche, and on employers. And I have real sympathy for those small businesses that are finding it tough. Mm -hmm. So it is a bit of Bob each way. It's a question of who pays, but the government doesn't never seems to consider that. David, you're an employer too. Are you happy with yet another cost on your business? Oh, my response might surprise people because I'm a former member of the Council of the Republican Movement. I am a small business owner and also an parent who will now have to look after kids that day. But having said all that, I am fine with it being a public holiday. If it was an annual thing, I hate all these extra annual holidays because they do just add more costs on. If we want a new one, we should take one of the existing ones away. But look, Queen dies once every 70 years. Yeah, I think once every 70 years, an extra public holiday is fine. And I think trying to actually have taxpayers pay for it actually probably makes it worse overall. And trying to have it so voluntary, I think, is also worse because what if half your staff want to work, half don't. If you're a parent, what if half the teachers want to work again? So I think just, yeah, uh, I've got no problems with what the government's doing. But having said that, I do have sympathy that the timing isn't great with all the COVID shutdowns. But, you know, this isn't one of those events you can really help with the timing. Let's go to other matters. And uh, rather lost in the news of the Queen's passing last week was a scathing report from Treasury on Oranga Tamariki. $1.1 billion earmarked for OT in the 2019 budget has essentially been wasted with, and I quote, a disparate collection of ideas not governed by a clear organisational strategy. 
And so the scathing language goes on. Uh, David, among many outcomes due to incompetence of this government in the last five years, this is surely right up there, isn't it? And, and worst of all, nobody seems to care. Yeah, it got buried somewhat coming out on Friday. Um, I actually thought that statement, and this isn't from us, this is from the Treasury, a disparate collection of ideas that had no clear organisational strategy, actually sums up the government as a whole. I thought it was the best articulation of the government I've heard. But this is outrageous because for two ones, $1.1 billion is a lot of money. Uh, Secondly, what they're trying to do is too important to fail, looking after most vulnerable kids. Um, Worst of all, from perhaps a taxpayer point of view, is they seem to have actually pretty much broken the law because they actually took money that Parliament voted them for one purpose and spent it on another purpose, effectively forcing an increase in their annual vote. And, you know, it's meant to be Parliament and ministers set the vote, not government chief executives by switching money about. So I actually think the Auditor General should be looking into this um, very seriously. But, Jordan, the Auditor General has looked into other aspects of government operations, and the government just seems to ignore the Auditor General. They might be hurting and might be stung by the words, but they don't really seem to pay any attention to the Auditor General, do they? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, I could take a pessimistic approach and say, you know, back in the day, this sort of extraordinary words out of the Treasury would have resulted in heads rolling, you know, that when I was at law school 15, 20 years ago, we were taught this concept about ministerial accountability. That seems to have eroded to such a degree, it's questionable whether it is still there. But as David points out, uh, with shifting the what you know funds that were appropriated by Parliament in a vote for one thing uh, over, to, over to something else or a different purpose, that's actually on the chief executive. And that is a question that we will be putting to the state services, what used to be called the state services commissioner, now the public service uh, commissioner, because that is an employment issue. Using money that has been appropriated for purpose X for Y is unlawful. And if that was done deliberately, and this is the role of groups like the Taxpayers Union, to dig in and see how that decision was made and whose feet does responsibility lie because, frankly, taxpayers would do a heck of a lot better uh, if we had more accountability coming out of Wellington. So that, that's a pessimistic view. The optimistic view, though, is I suspect that the Auditor General is feeling a little bit like the taxpayers' union, that it is a bit bewildering. There are so many things coming down the pipeline and you have to triage or uh, focus at areas where you're probably going to shift the dial the most. However... You look at, uh, for example, Three Waters and the Auditor General's comments about the Water Services Entities Bill, that he does still have a lot of clout and credibility, whilst the media, I think, is connected into that lack of accountability that, frankly, that should have been a much bigger story than, than what it is. I get the timing wasn't um, was far from ideal. But a lot of that accountability is the role of the media and what they choose to highlight and what is on the front page of the Dom or the Herald or or whatever. But in the establishment, the Auditor General and these institutions still do matter. And it is 
I can tell you from running a campaign organization where sometimes you do feel like you're pushing the proverbial uphill to have your messages or your key points, and I go back to Three Waters example, being made by someone with the authority or mana of the Auditor General does help because it makes it so much harder for the government or for your opponents to discredit you or say, oh, well, you know, those are just fringe concerns or um, uh, uh, left doesn't use um, fake news. What do they use? Misinformation is their, is their line. It's just harder. And so these things are quite important. All right. Well, to something which is sort of related to what you've been talking about, Jordan, voting in local body elections is almost upon us. Uh, the papers will be in our letterboxes soon. If we're true to form, what, about 35% of us will actually bother to fill them in and send them back. But I note, guys, there's been more activism this year from various fronts, uh, the Stuff website especially, and local government New Zealand. Now, Stuff is well within its remit to do so, even if you could challenge the authenticity of their approach. But uh, LGNZ has become involved as well in a way that I don't think is actually part of their purpose for being. Uh, What do you think about this, David? Well, I've been astounded somewhat that local government New Zealand seems to have changed from being a body that should represent local government to the central government to then becoming a body that represents central government to local government and now seems to think its job is to represent local government to the voters and tell voters what sort of candidates they should be looking for and selecting. And I feel sad. I think local government New Zealand in the past has done some really good stuff, but the the way they're going, if you were a councillor, you'd have to really be saying, should we be paying money to these people? Well, Timaru's decided they're not. Uh, So far, they're the only ones holding back on their uh, annual subscription to LGNZ. Jordan, what's your thinking on the role that LGNZ is playing and also the role that uh, Stuff is playing? Now, they're a media organisation and they can promote or disapprove of who they want to, but have they taken their role too far in this? What do you think of LGNZ first? Well, yeah, let's take it in turn. I think LGNZ uh, is a symptom of a greater problem and that is that the establishment is far more suspicious or has far less faith in this wonderful thing called democracy. And I mean, we've, I'm sure we've spoken about LGNZ on this podcast before. I mean, the fact is, is they uh, totally misunderstand New Zealand's constitution, that it is not the role of a, gov- of a government-funded or a t- ratepayer-funded, uh, local government-funded agency to sort of expose or dox those of whom of us are anti-government and use all sorts of labels and, and, and things around people or mislabels um, in some instances. I mean, do you trust an organisation to identify who is acceptable or not acceptable that bans your humble taxpayers union with some 200,000 subscribed supporters and banned all of us because they want to have a closed-door conversation about the future of local democracy? Now, that, I just put to you that the judgment is not the most appropriate and this is just continued example of them not really understanding New Zealand's constitution and frankly misusing their power but it is simply a symptom of an elite in Wellington that think they know best. The second one is on the media is it, it's sort of connected that the and, and I'll 
admit, Peter, I'm, I'm glad we came to this because it has been in front of mind for the last few weeks, and I'm deeply concerned the way that acceptable, what is acceptable views is, and I use that in quotation marks, are becoming narrower and narrower. And the joint campaign between this far-left group called Fact Datiaroa, um fight against, what is it? Um, uh, conspiracy uh, theories? Is that what the so CT stands conspiracy for? Conspiracy theories, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, conspiracy theories. And they've roped in some people that are rat bags and a bit nuts, but you need a democracy, you know, like that's that's part of the, that's the other half of it. But also, I'm aware of people that are running for council that have simply had what they have said about things like Three Waters and concerns um, they have about the government picked up by Voices for Freedom. They've had no other involvement in Voices for Freedom and suddenly they are doxxed by this group that somehow, presumably, is being funded by LGNZ and a joint campaign with staff. Let's call it what it is. It is, you know, it's witch hunting. So, do you it have is, do you have um, proof that uh, do you have proof that FACT is being funded by local government New Zealand? Yeah, they explained it as a joint campaign. We, th- this isn't me saying <laughs> this. LGNZ went public that this was a joint initiative. That's extraordinary. To identify isn't it? these ca- these candidates. Now, I would love to ask LGNZ what how much have you given this campaign group? But because they don't fit under the freedom of information. Uh, regime, they've got a special carve out, we'll never know. And uh, what it sort of, they're separate issues but connected because, again, I mean, and I mean, one of the criterion was you were, you know, you were far right extremist and anti government. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified to say, and I, I don't put myself in either of the first two categories, but it may surprise you, Peter, but I have real concerns about the current government. That is what partly democracy is about. And to have, you know, to operate in an environment where we're fearful of being l- uh, lumped in uh, with, with uh, you know, and, and words like extremists and, and, and things like that, a conspiracy theorist lobbed around, that's McCarthyism. Indeed. And it is, it's dangerous. It, it drives the very polarisation that groups like LGNZ purport to be resisting. David, you're a professional pollster running the Curia uh, Research Company. You have real concerns about the so-called poll on the Wellington Merrill race uh, run by the Dominion Post newspaper. They say it's a straw poll and it's unscientific, but I get the feeling that their prominence means that it's going to be given a lot more credibility than what it should get. And you've in fact complained to the paper about it, haven't you? Yeah, I think it's the first time I can recall, maybe I did one 15 years ago. I do not tend to lodge formal complaints, partly because I'm part of the complaint system. I don't want to encourage them. But I think the way they treated this, you can't call it a poll unless you call it a junk poll. It's an entertainment online survey. They're a bit interesting. Their significance is on page 12, you might say, here's the result of our online survey of readers. That they've got no predictive value. And the Don Post amazingly ran it as almost the entire page three. The headline was Farnell leads in poll. 
suggesting because not everyone reads down to the fifth paragraph where they mention unscientific and they actually rang up all the candidates and asked them to comment on the poll uh which you know this would be like um you know occasionally like the home show used to run um you know your text and your views one and this would be like one news the following day on on the the six o'clock news running a major story maybe the second story on the results of their text and survey um they're fun they're a bit interesting but they're not anything you should be publishing a major news story on i think and hope that the dom poser realized they've stuffed up badly by what they've done is going to be really interesting their response to my complaint because partly the damage is done there's not much you can do now but i had like 10 12 people yesterday say to me oh that was really interesting poll i had no idea you know she was in the lead etc so lots of people have just seen the headline the first couple of paragraphs and thought this is actually something of news value and the irony considering what we just talked about where stuff and others have been campaigning against misinformation is this is classic misinformation and it's on page three of the local paper far from backing down from yesterday's article the Dominion have published an opinion piece all about the poll. And all it's, it, does, it does describe the poll as an unscientific poll, but now that they've got that out of the way, they still treat it as if this, this, this thing has is, is, is totally changed the race. That, that's, the, that's the key message of the opinion piece, uh, that the Green Party candidate is actually, you know, sh- sh- she's going to win sort of thing. It... It is just the where are the adults in the newsroom? So I've never got through the editorial process um, in the way it did. Um, a professor of statistics, Thomas Lungley, has done a piece on stats chat, um, decrying it too, etc. I cannot recall a media organisation giving such profile to what's effectively a junk poll in the last 20 years or so. It really is unprecedented. You have to hope it's incompetence. But another far more scientific poll has just been released. This is the Taxpayers' Union Curia political poll. David, what are the numbers? Uh, well, what you've got is the last couple have been very much Māori Pahi balance of power or a hung parliament. But this is the first poll for a while that shows a clear victory for the centre-right if an election was held today, where National's gone from 1% behind to 4% ahead of Labour, and you've also got Act 2% ahead of the Greens. So overall, National and Act would get 63 seats in a parliament if there was one today. That's the highest National and Act have ever been in this poll. Uh, not that long ago, a year or so, they they were down at 43 seats, and now they're at 63 seats. And I think a big driver of this is the country direction. Um, the country direction has dropped quite significantly. It's been dropping for a while, but it's now at minus 23%. So 32% of people think New Zealand's in the right direction, and a majority of 54% say it's heading in the wrong direction. Again, it's the first ever time in this poll that over 50% of respondents have said, we think the country's heading in the wrong direction. Now, that stays set. 
that's going to be bad news for the government. Now, there's only one poll as a snapshot. October, things may change. Um, this sounds a bit crass, but uh, things like the death of a monarch uh, can be a unifying effect for a country, and that can help the incumbent government, etc. Um, and of course, we've seen the end to COVID restrictions, which has happened after this poll. So don't read too much into one poll, but the country direction being so negative, I think, is a very concerning sign if you're the government wanting re-election. And that's the second poll in a row where that number has been over 50% because Roy Morgan, just a matter of a week or so ago, had the same number. I think their uh, percentage was 53% of the country going in the wrong direction. So, David, what is the, the Maori Party number in this poll? Because, after all, they were the ones holding the balance of power in recent polls, haven't they? Yeah, and they've dropped down. The small parties tend to bounce around a bit. They're, they're back down down to 1.5% in this poll. Um, the, the thing is, because National Act have 63 seats, it really doesn't matter how many seats the Māori Party has. It's only if no one gets to 61 seats that the Māori Party becomes significant and they would decide who gets to form the government. Or Winston, if he gets to 5%, but he's also back at, I think, 1.5% or 2 so so a long way off. So, Jordan, just uh, quickly, a, a reaction from you to these numbers? Yeah, I mean, given the headwinds the government's facing, and Matthew Houghton put this very well in his column last week's Herald, uh, it is surprising that the gap isn't a lot wider. And I have been um, pretty cool, you know, for the this question a lot from our uh, donors. You know, how do you think the election is going to go next year? And I point out that in 2004, it very much looked like Don Brash was going to be our next prime minister. A through through 2005, a very effective smear campaign against Don Brash. Uh, we all know the, the result. I think that's what next year will look like. I'm expecting it to be very dirty, unfortunately. Uh, we already know, we've already seen a, a little bit of that around the abortion issue and the way the government knows it's got to turn up that dial in relation to scary Mr Luxon. Uh, and I think that that's probably their only pathway back to power. Taxpayer Union co-founders Jordan Williams and David Farrer on this week's Taxpayer Talk panel. And that is this week's edition. If you'd like to get in touch, my address is peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Until next time, this is Peter Williams for Taxpayer Talk.